0: In the name of God, the Beneficent, the Merciful, we begin by uh, invoking blessing and uh, sending peace uh, upon his Prophet Muhammad, Uh, peace be upon him. Uh, This is the Renovatio uh, podcast. Uh, The Renovatio podcast is connected with Renovatio, a publication that is produced by Zaytuna College. Uh, This afternoon, I have the great pleasure of being with the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan, uh, Professor Juan Cole, who I like to call the real J. Cole, (laughs) Professor Juan Cole. And we're hoping to have a conversation about one of the great unassailables of our time, the the, the concept and idea of equality. But before we get into that, Professor Cole, how are you? I'm
1: great, thank you very much. It's
0: great to have you on. You know, before we um, began the, the podcast, the recording, I was thanking you for broadening my understanding of kind of the historical background and context of the prophet Muhammad uh, because I heard you presenting at Elmhurst College and you were just pointing out the quite intuitive. The prophet was groomed and raised in Banu Hashim in a sanctuary city, in a city where you know violence was forbidden, even the cutting down of trees was forbidden and this would have made him a person Predisposed to, to to peace and islah, or you know, amity and treaty building and, and the like. So thank you for that. Thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you. I, uh, it was a great audience there at Elmhurst, and this comes out of my historical study of the conditions under which Islam
0: arose. Mm-hmm. Today, we're, we're we're biting off a uh, you know a different chunk. We're 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 eating a different piece of toast. Looking at this idea of equality, right, this idea of equality, you've written an article that will be running in Renovatio, uh, the journal, soon, but you take on this idea of equality. You know, what compelled you or what what motivated you to, to look at this idea of equality in the Quran? Well, I
1: wrote that article and I I know Renovatio doesn't want it to address a very narrow time period. Uh, Those articles are supposed to stand uh, for a long time, but every piece of writing does have an origin uh, in its time. And I wrote it in the uh, aftermath of the summer of, of Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd killing, when these issues of racial inequality in the United States, were very much uh, on my mind, and since I'm writing about the Quran uh, quite a lot these days, I was reading it through that lens. And it is a text, of course, of late antiquity of the of the seventh century of the Common Era. But as as you were saying uh, when we were talking uh, before the show, these issues in how people are treated, and issues in equality of treatment uh, have been with humankind since the beginning
0: absolutely absolutely but one of the things that i see you pointing to in your article and as a spoiler to everyone else out there i've been able to read the article yes i have i, I must admit <laughs> i must admit and it is in immensely enjoyable but one of the things that you you point out in the article and we won't spoil it for the readership is that this kind of mythic almost egalitarianism where everyone is categorically equal you really don't see this anywhere in antiquity
1: is that correct yeah or today
0: either
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, it, 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 uh, you know it's partly a matter of definition i mean what kind of equality could be universal and i think the the best that most human societies can hope for is an equality of law, equality of of social treatment, equality of opportunity. And one of the things we're concerned about nowadays is being able to see when inequality becomes systemic, when there are mechanisms that maybe are not very visible for creating and maintaining inequality. And you know, different human societies erect structures of inequality and hierarchies on different bases. In the United States, it's race. But in India, they have a problem with caste and to some extent religion. And in in some other societies, religion is very much an issue. And so what ethnicity is might change from place to place. But there is a tendency in human societies to have privileged groups and disprivileged groups and to fall into practices of inequality. And I think throughout history, there have been people who found this objectionable and who demanded, again, an equality of treatment, an equality under the law, at the very least for people. And I think, you know, the Quran exemplifies that ethos.
0: No, you know, Dr. Sherman Jackson, who for a long time was at the University of Michigan, who's a teacher and mentor of mine. One of the things that he likes to talk about in reference to modern society, and, you know, classical society as well, is that society is always comprised of competing regimes of love. And love can never really be equal. See love can never be you know it's almost like I love all children, but Asia, Najashi, and Makita, my children. I can't love other children equally. Those are my children. And people often have competing regimes of love when it comes to ethnicity, when it comes to certain class loyalties and affiliations when it comes to co-religion shared among you know, a group of adherents, et cetera. And his point is always, rather than denying that these things exist, rather than trying to pretend as though, oh, no, 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 it's it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same. We actually get further as a, as a society when we acknowledge that, yes, there are competing regimes of love. How can we minimize the way that we're affected by those competing regimes of love in terms of our treatment and before the law exactly right and and how can we make sure that inequality doesn't become systemic but in terms of that esprit de corps that that added feeling of loyalty or love or fealty or you know feelings of team spirit if you will that exists between members of a particular group that self-identify as a group i think that's always been there and is probably always going to be there
1: Yeah, it's certainly that, uh, you know, there are lots of professors, but uh, there are a few great men, and Sherman Jackson is one of those, and his insights are very valuable. Uh, What I would say is, you know, people who study ethics, some of them have tried to apply the methods of child psychology and uh, structural psychology to ethics. And uh, it's been posited, at least, that actually getting to the point where you would sacrifice for your group of love, uh, for the people that that you love, is a higher form of ethics than being totally self-absorbed. Uh, so, so when when you you love your children, you love your family. Well, there are some people who don't very much and who would sell them out, f- uh, you know, for for a small sum. That's a higher ethic to devote yourself to your regime of love. But even higher than that. Is to care about the other, and the way human society works, I think it's generally the case that if the other is not also being cared for and loved and treated well, then that's going to rebound. That's that's going to end up hurting your loved ones, and so you do have you know these higher levels of ethics, and I think people like Jesus and Muhammad were trying to appeal to that higher level.
0: No, I, I think I think you you bring that out you know very effectively um you know in your article this idea that the quran you know posits the other as an opportunity for mutual learning right looking at this uh, verse in the chambers <laughs> ya yuhannas inna khalaqnaakum min dhakarin wa unta waja'alnakum shu'uba wa qabaila li ta'arufu in akramakum 'indallahi atqaakum Inna Allah Alimul Khabir, right? Oh humanity, we created you from one male and one female. And we intentionally spread you into nations and tribes so that you would come to know one another. Truly, the most ennobled of you in the sight of God are those possessed of the greatest God consciousness. And God is knowing and aware. And looking at this is kind of like, well, the other is not simply to be held in contempt. You know, I remember you writing that maybe some of those Zoroastrian priests might find it, you know, fatuous that this barbarian could in any way be equal to a civilized person. But rather the Quran is, is suggesting that, no, the other presents an opportunity to learn. And there is a kind of equality in that. Is that is that am I am I grasping that correctly? Oh you're saying it better than I did. No. Yes, absolutely. Uh th- you know the the
1: ancient world in which the Quran was preached uh did have very strong hierarchies in society. The Greeks had this idea of the barbarian and they used it really unashamedly. <laughs> I mean, they, would, they would just openly call people barbarians uh if they weren't yeah, g- I was Greek speakers. That, you know, adjunct,
0: adjunct, yeah, yeah, you
1: Yeah, that happens in in the Muslim world as well. And and in Iran, uh, at that time, it was a Zoroastrian society. Uh, uh, Zoroastrians aren't very numerous anymore, but you have the Parsis in India and some in in, uh, Yazd in Iran. But at that time, they were uh, the the backbone of the Sasanian Iranian empire. And they saw the world as Iran, which is good, and and Iran, uh, not Iran, which which is very, very inferior and bad. This verse of the Quran is challenging those ways of thinking. It's saying, as I read it, that, you know, this division between the civilized and the cultured who know things and the barbarian from whom you have nothing to learn is a mirage. That in fact, every people, every ethnic group, every clan, you know, they develop forms of knowledge that are special to their ways of life and from which one can learn and you know you can see this in the modern world and i think about that verse i think about i had a, a, a friends when i was a, a, an undergraduate at northwestern who had gotten interested in ethnobiology and it's a kind of you know branch of anthropology but also it slides into chemistry and ethnobotanists go to places like the backwoods of Brazil. And they get to know native tribes who have developed um, knowledge of plants in their area. And they use the plants for medicinal purposes or, or psychological purposes. And often these plants are rare elsewhere. And the outside world just doesn't know of their properties. And and of course, there's a danger a lot of this knowledge is disappearing. They'll go out and live with these people and learn from them how they use these plants for, for medicines. And in some instances, pharmaceutical companies have been able to develop new cures for diseases from this knowledge of these Brazilian tribes. Well, you know, from the point of view of the conquistadors uh, who went to Brazil from Spain, uh, these are savages. They have nothing to teach us. But what ethnobotany is telling us is that actually they could save your
0: life. You know, one one of my teachers used to say, don't look down on anyone in terms of knowledge because sometimes you can find in the creek what doesn't exist in the ocean. So this idea that a man or woman of learning is also a man or woman of great humility right and that 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 sees that hmm, beneficial knowledge can be gleaned from many places you know the prophet famously said al hikma dalatul mu'min that you know wisdom is the lost found property of the believer wherever she finds it she claims ownership of it right so this idea that you know any you know group of people can be denounced as patently ignorant, with nothing to offer. I too think that this is not a Quranic perspective. But you do mention that the Quran does admit differentiation in virtue. People, there's a a hierarchy of virtue, but that's not the same as a hierarchy of ethnicity or social class. There's a hierarchy of virtue. And this is affirmed. By the Quran, is that am I am I grasping that correctly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Although what what's really interesting is that the hierarchy of virtue, uh, which is a very good phrase for it, it pertains to individuals and not to groups. Mm. There are no wow. unvirtuous groups; they're individuals. And um, uh-huh. uh, you know, the the Quran was preached in a society where kinship. Relations were very important. Uh, people had clans. Yes. They had tribes. No, in the Middle East, the tribe is not a pejorative. I, I, a lot of people complain now in America when you use the word tribe, uh, yes. especially about you know uh, Native Americans or, or, or Africans, that it's, it, it can be pejorative. Uh, but in the Middle East, people are proud of, of belonging. They call it an ashira, to belonging to a kinship group. And they do kinship politics on that basis. And oh, yes. the people in, in, in Mecca, apparently, at the time of the prophet, uh, when he warned them that if they don't shape up, if they don't stop their immoral practices, uh, uh, then they're going to meet a, a, a very unpleasant end in the afterlife, in in hell. They appear to have replied, well, I, I can't worry about that too much. My cousin's a really great guy, and he's going to get me in. Wow. <laughs> I, they <laughs> they, about they about thought that, you know, should... that yeah. heaven or hell, you know, the clans would take care of you. If, if, if anybody from the clan got into heaven, that they'd manage to get you in too. And Of course, that's the way their society worked. If, if, if there was any prerogative, any perquisite, any good thing that one of them got, they were expected to share it around in the clan. So the Quran is strict with them. It says, nobody can help you. You're on your own, yeah. guy. It's an individual. Know. You know, they, It talks about the nafs, which is uh, the, the soul, the psyche. It's the individual soul or psyche that makes its bed with regard to salvation in the Quran, with regard to ethics. So nothing that anybody else does, according to the Quran, can benefit you in the afterlife. It's it's on you as an
0: individual. This gift, in a sense, of individuality, right? This gift of a belief in individual responsibility, individual reckoning, is something that I think many modern people used to take for granted, although it's become in vogue, especially in academic circles, that we're back to really talking about groups, the privileged and the underprivileged, right? The heteronormative and the non-binary, the white, and the person of color. We're 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 back talking about morality and ethics in large group categories. Uh, this is a departure from, to my mind, what made Islamic civilization and what made Western civilization unique from from kind of its 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 antique past.
1: That's right. I, I think there there were um, uh, you know movements and uh, religions. Uh, I, I, a lot of hellenic paganism for instance which did you know think that by virtue of belonging to the group you 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 had a higher spiritual status or you you would have a, a better end as you say both the gospels and the quran challenge this group thing. another interesting thing about this verse that that you quoted is that it begins by talking about male and female and i think it implies that not only did you did human beings diversify into plans and peoples which developed then valuable knowledge that the others could learn from but that men had something to learn from women and vice versa and that strikes me i mean i i don't think it's an unprecedented point of view in late antiquity but i don't think it was a very common view in late antiquity that men and much to learn from women. and But the Quran, I think, uh, does imply that very
0: strongly. Yes, and there's actually a, a statement uh, attributed to the Prophet, shaka'i that women are the twin halves you know, of men, kind of affirming the spiritual equality of men and women, and that they're equal in their value, but distinct in their roles, right? We tend to, as moderns, there's a conflation of value and roles, right? For us, there's often this idea that equality in value is only achieved through equality in role. And that that notion, I find, that, that notion would be out of place in a in a traditional context. But the Quranic perspective is refreshing, you know, in that you know the other is always it, it, there's always a, a great opportunity to learn you know, about the other, you know, something else that I think, you know, is a we're, we're segueing into it beautifully is that there is this idea in the Quran, and you mentioned this in your, uh, you know, beautiful article, that diversity of even diversity in the created order, diversity is seen as a sign of God's creative power, right? That variety, even in, you know, the streaks of color that we see on mountain ranges or variety in you know our languages variety in our complexions race is a is a much more recent notion but variety in our skin colors etc this is a sign of god this is not a breakdown in in what god wanted but rather this is what god wanted
1: yeah you know I- I had long been a little puzzled by those verses in the Quran, which talked about, uh, all the brightly colored mountains or the, the kind of the brightly colored fruit. And you could imagine, you know, one of those expressionist paintings uh, in nineteenth-century in <laughs> right, France. Right. I mean, with with the with the with the, uh, the bowl of fruit and it's uh, these uh, bright colors, or well, the flowers, uh, or the cloud. Right? Yeah, exactly. And then. The Quran says that these are signs of God, and uh, that people should learn from them. And then, as you say, it it's explicitly mentions the diversity of languages and and complexions uh, of people as signs of God, as as a positive. And I wanted to think about where is this coming from? What exactly does it mean? And why why are they signs of God? And why are they being given this positive valuation? Because that wasn't common that is to say although as you correctly say the ancient world didn't have our ideas about race for instance a race is a constructed category and it was constructed in our in our own peculiar use of it fairly recently but they did I mean obviously no know, know that that there were different peoples with different skin colors and they valued them differently on that basis sometimes so Galen appears to be what we would now call a horrid racist <laughs> and uh, thought that that uh, that black people uh, didn't have the same capacities as whites and um, or I'm not sure he would have used the word white but as as Greeks in any case but the Quran is saying that 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 complexion is is a wonderful thing that the diversity of complexions is a wonderful thing and that it's a sign of God I wanted to give some thought to why is that the case what is the logic here so. In the Quran there's an emphasis on God's role as a differentiator. And there's this sort of notion that I think you see it also in Genesis in the Bible that in the beginning things were formless. In the beginning things were formless and they were without form or color. They were dull and they weren't distinct. Which incidentally, uh, you know, scientists now think that uh, the universe developed from a singularity sort of a black hole and and one of the characteristics of a black hole is that it it, it, no light can escape it it has no attributes Uh, the physicists say there's no no hair on a a black hole our contemporary cosmogony is not so different from uh, the ancient one that that things began by being formless and colorless and dull and how did they get form and color that's god's creative activity God endows them with form. He differentiates them. And so in ancient Near East myth, uh, for instance, there was in Mesopotamia and ancient Iraq, there was a notion that there was just one body of water. The divine separated it out into sweet water and salt water. And it's then surrounded, and then it was separated out from earth. So then you get the three basic elements of human life, sweet water, earth, and salt water. Well, this idea is in Quran, this imagery is used that that God separated out the two bodies of water and made a barrier between them. And one is sweet and one is salt and one you can drink and the other you can't. And and then the, the water has pearls in it and so forth. So this differentiation of primal matter into discrete things into things that are distinct from one another and which have attributes wherever you see that wherever you see difference that's a sign of god's creativity in the quran and yeah. so so when we see that people have different complexions why is that a sign of god that's because they would have different complexions unless they had differentiated from the formless void of the beginning and so it is a sign that god's at work here and of course in our modern way of thinking you know we now know that different skin colors are adaptations to nature i won't go on a lot about this but a lot of people don't seem to know this and it and it, it it's fairly well established in the in the science that you know human beings need vitamin d and they don't make it unless they're exposed to sunlight sunlight is a trigger for making it and and so if you live in an area with low UV rays, so that you're, you're not being provoked to make vitamin D. You'll have vitamin D deficiencies. And there are diseases that come about because of that. Uh, uh, multiple sclerosis is associated with low vitamin D. And so it's more common in Scotland or uh, uh, the Nordic countries uh, because they don't get as much sunlight. So you need the vitamin D. That's one of the parameters. The other thing is that you need protection from ultraviolet rays. When a, a mother is pregnant, an embryo in her belly, if it gets too much UV rays, that can do genetic damage, it can cause a miscarriage, and maybe not very often, maybe one in you know several hundred thousand. But over time, in Central Africa, for instance, the ultraviolet rays are very heavy, they would select for the darker sister's babies to survive. So over time, people would be dark skinned in a high UV environment. But if you took those people and put them in Sweden, they'd have a problem of not being able to get enough UV rays to provoke them to make enough vitamin D, which would also be bad for the children. And so in Sweden, over thousands of years, nature would select out the lighter daughter and and her children for survival. And that's what really happened in history, is that Africans... After the ice age was over, came up to the Nordic countries, and after 13,000 years, they're white. But none of this has anything to do with character or intelligence or, or anything like that. All these things have been hung on it. It's it's just these two parameters: vitamin D and UV rays. And I'm simplifying a
0: little bit. Yeah, but yes, that's actually a very beautiful way of explaining. What the Islamic theologians associate with the name of God, Musawir. God is the one, Hu'aladi Yusawirukum fil Arhami kaifa yasha. It's God who forms you in the wombs of your mothers, however He chooses. So again, this creativity is seen as an expression of the Mashi'ah, of kind of the divine will. And those blessed with insight can, can, can perceive it as such. And perhaps more importantly, are not frustrated by difference. You know, you're in the Midwest. I'm in the Midwest. So for us, you know, the the, the line of poetry, it is better to appreciate the change in seasons than to fall hopelessly in love with summer. That makes sense to us. Now, for Bay Area people, I don't know. I I don't think it resonates the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you resonates, resonates the same way. I think that's right. Uh, 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 the,
1: the, there is this great diversity of, of human condition, of, of the nature in which we live, and it shapes people. I personally think I'm not originally from Michigan, and I think uh, uh, cold winters and long winters make people a little bit more standoffish. My son grew up in Michigan, and uh, I'd be with him and I'd be in a coffee shop or something, and I'd have something on my mind. I'd start talking to the person next to me. I'd, I'd ask them a question.
0: and He would say, Dad, Dad, you're not supposed to talk to strangers like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting about your perspective, Professor Cole, is that Ibn Khaldun, in his Muqaddimah, he says exactly the same thing that the biggest determinant of character for him is weather, that the closer you get to the Mediterranean, The more balanced you know in his own idiom the more balanced people become and the further or in this case farther you move from the mediterranean the more extreme people become right both extremely north and extremely south with him using the term hemeji like barbaric as you get away from calming weather of the mediterranean so it's it's very your your perspective has been shared by other great thinkers you know before closing though you know one of the things that i found most compelling about this beautiful article you penned is you make it very clear that it was the context of black lives matter and the police killing of george floyd and you know a modern context in which you know a friend of mine professor rodrigo edem who is now at Georgetown. You know, he said, the early challenges that the Muslim community faced, they were mostly about la ilaha illallah. You know, challenges, you know, it was, you know, Aristotelian logic, it was Hellenistic wisdom and thought, and it was, you know, a lot of issues of, godhead and divinity and epistemology etc but the challenges that the community faces now are mostly about the muhammad Rasulullah. issues of human rights issues of gender equality issues of alternative sexual identities gender identities etc and one of the things i find compelling about this article that you wrote was that You're unafraid to say, I'm aware of the context we're living in, but I'm looking at the classics. I'm looking at, you know, works of late antiquity. I'm looking at the Quran. I'm looking at some of the classics in terms of some of the Greek classics. I'm looking at works of the playwright Terence. I'm looking at, and these things inform your perspective about the modern world. At Renovatio, this is, this is, for us, this is like, Yes, the past has a great deal to say about the present, but I think many people believe that as we negotiate, you know, race and equality and egalitarianism and some of these modern categories, we're doing all of this ex nihilo. We're the first people that have ever thought about these things and the solutions that we're developing to problems are completely without precedent. And I think you'd have a lot to say to the contrary. Oh yeah, well you know one of
1: the fascinating things about the time of the Prophet Muhammad was the way that blackness was being used. Again, mm. not not racially, but the skin color, because the Ethiopians had conquered Yemen, and Yemen had been uh, ruled by we think a Jewish dynasty in Good. the 400s, 500s. But in the early 500s, the Ethiopians came over and conquered it, and they were Christian. They were Monophysite uh, Christians like the Egyptians. Then In 570 or so, around the time the Prophet Muhammad was born, the Iranians came in and conquered Yemen. And they persecuted the Ethiopian Christians and allied with whatever Jews were left and pagans, and they promoted Zoroastrianism. But according to the accounts of the great Muslim historian Tabari, who was himself from an Iranian background, the Zoroastrian Iranians who conquered Yemen in the time of the Prophet associated Christianity and blackness, and they saw both as signs of loyalty to the Christian Roman Empire in Constantinople. And since that was their enemy, they hunted down and persecuted black people in in Yemen. And they associated with Christianity, with loyalty to Rome, with loyalty to Ethiopia. And also then the pagan Arabs had uh, sometimes black slaves from Africa. And, and would have children with them. And the children would have a lower status because they were mixed race, according to you know these early pagan Arab poems. And so uh, Antar was a great warrior whose mother was African and who faced discrimination. He couldn't marry the woman that he was in love with uh, and his tribe didn't value him until there was a great battle And they were so desperate, they called on his help. And he came in and won the battle. He used to say that uh, uh, he had two lineages. He had the noble lineage of the Arabs, and he had the the lineage of the sword. And uh, he substituted the sword for his blackness. And so when the Quran says that differences of complexion are signs of God and to be valued, it's pushing back against ideologies of blackness that devalued it or or even actively saw it as as a challenge in
0: his own world. You know, that notion of the Qur'an challenging this negative predisposition that existed toward blackness in the Arabian Peninsula, many modern writers have written about that. But one of the things that I find compelling is that many of the stories of the Qur'an and also characters mentioned in the Quran are characters of African origin. So Moses, Suleiman, Solomon, Moses, there's almost kind of a tacit, I think it would be an overstatement to call it a celebration, but there's a tacit kind of esteem of that Christian past and some of that Africanity that we also see in some of these Qur'anic stories. Yeah, insofar as the
1: Qur'an defends Arabian Christianity, it seems to me inevitable that it's defending black Christianity, uh, quite deliberately so in in the face of these critiques of it. And of course, there are stories that the Ethiopian king in in Aksum, uh, the Nijas, gave Muslims uh, refuge when they were being persecuted. So that there seems to have been a kind of Muslim-Christian Arab Black alliance at that time, probably yeah, yeah a, against the the Arab pagans and perhaps the sasanian Iranians.
0: You know, my my my, my son is actually uh, named Najashi. You know, after yeah, yeah, after yeah. Uh, the title of Ashama ibn Ab- Abjar, that Aksumite king. But no, this is a very interesting history. This has been a really enriching conversation. Forgive me if I cut you off in some spaces, but I would have been content to just let you talk about this beautiful article that you've written i am excited that our readership will get to enjoy the article soon you know you you do a very good job of talking about equality in the quran and then you end and i'll let you i'll let you close us out here by saying although there is no direct overlap in terms of modern liberal notions of equality and egalitarianism you do see the Qur'an challenging some of the, these hierarchies right of gender, some of these hierarchies of complexion, some of these these even ableist hierarchies. I mean, you know, you talked about uh, Abdullah, you know, Ibn Umm Maktoum uh, رضي may God be pleased with him, this blind and also, you know, you bring out Ibn Umm Maktoum that he didn't have a patronym he wasn't connected to a male progenitor which was a sign of just how socially insignificant he was in that in that in that milieu and his interaction with the prophet and you know the prophet being chided or there's, there's a kind of tawbih there's a kind of rebuke that is issued to the prophet and i'll let you close by highlighting what ended up being the finishing touch of your article. Bismillah. The floor is yours.
1: Sure. Uh, well, this is a, a wonderful story in the Quran. And from reading the Quran, it seems as though the prophet was meeting with some of these pagan notables in Mecca. And he was eager to see if he couldn't win them over to his cause. And they were rich and apparently very snotty and, and obnoxious. Uh, and they believed in many gods and they, they resisted his preaching of the one God. Ibn Umm Maktoub appears to have, uh, the Quran doesn't mention his name, but we we know it from later sources. He appears to have approached the Quran during one of these sessions with these notables. And the Prophet didn't have the time for him at that moment. He he was talking to somebody important. And this is a, a really interesting feature of the Quran and of early Islam compared to Christianity. Whereas the Prophet Muhammad is very human and he occasionally makes a mistake. And so the Prophet is, as you say, he's he's scolded by the Quran that why didn't you have time for um, Ibn Umm Maktoum? Here's this guy who was a seeker. He's a spiritual seeker. You maybe could win him over. You could have his his belief in Islam. And you didn't have time for him because you were talking to the hoity-toity guys, or you're never going to get their loyalty anyway. They're just never going to be humble enough to acquiesce. Later on, Um Um-Maktoum becomes a caller to prayer. He's one of the first in in Medina, and, and he is won over. And so clearly the Quran is saying that blind people have souls that are just as valuable Not only just as valuable as as any other human being, but just as valuable as the sighted elite, as the wealthy and the powerful and the the, the cool people that you would really like to get to know and be in their circle, and maybe they'll, they'll do some favors for you. But the blind and the people without known fathers in society are spiritually just as important as they are, and it would be wrong it would be wrong to to ignore them in favor of the others.
0: Wow, you know, just closing out, that, that reminds me of this idea that Nietzsche really disliked about Christianity that he called the transvaluation of human values. You see, whereas we're naturally inclined to esteem strength and capacity. And right, the Übermensch. this is, we're naturally inclined. He said, Christianity wants us to look at the poor the weak, the downtrodden, and wants us to kind of see in them our exemplary models. And he thought that this was something bad. Religious communities have always esteemed that as, yes, these are people whose lives, whose experiences and whose souls are incalculably valuable. And I think that story highlights that. So that, that perhaps is a good place to end. This has been a learning experience for me. I look forward to reading your book about the prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, a prophet of peace amid a clash of empires. I look forward to reading that text, and I look forward to reading your article again in Renovatio, actually between two proper covers. And this is hopefully the first raindrop in what will be a torrential downpour of good between you and Renovatio, you and Zaytuna, and
1: me and you. Thank you so much, uh, Obedallah. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I've learned from your insights uh, things that I didn't think about in my own article. So I, I, I very much appreciate that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So uh, this, this was the, the Renovatio podcast, and we look forward to you all tuning in for the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>